Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sachs. It's going to be uh, an interesting weekend. Uh, we're waiting to see what's happening with the January 6th uh, committee, uh, whether or not uh, Nancy Pelosi will be adding Adam Kinzinger, hiring uh, Denver Riggleman. Uh, as I, I tweeted out yesterday, he, Kinzinger, Cheney, and Riggleman, oh my. I, uh, as I said in my newsletter, I, I'm not going to lie to you. It feels like kind of a bulwark trifecta, but we won't get ahead of ourselves on all of that. Uh, how many of you actually thought that uh, Sean Hannity was going to stay with the sober, responsible message that, you know, everybody should go out and take the vaccine seriously? Uh, he was widely praised for all of that. A lot of, lot of heavy breathing about the, the pivot on the part of uh, Fox News and other people on the right who suddenly decided that, hey, maybe we shouldn't uh, be screwing around with uh, vaccine hesitancy, especially with the spike in uh, in the Delta variant. Well, uh, the the new sober, responsible uh, Sean Hannity lasted about three days. Uh, in case you missed this, on Monday, he did tell he, he it sounded like he was reading reading something that somebody had handed him uh, about the, the need to take uh, the coronavirus really seriously because I mean after 600,000 deaths it's, it's 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 time to sober up it's time now to take this seriously well apparently he got some blowback among his audience slash the base and so this is what he said last night I'm not urging people to get the covid 19 vaccine because oh. I'm not a doctor. No, you're not. That is not what I said. Oh, no. I said to take it seriously. Oh. It can kill you. I said to do a lot of research. If you have a phone, do your research. I said to consult your doctor and doctors. Okay, sounds a little bit defensive there. Okay, take it seriously. Um, but I didn't tell you to actually do it. I told you to Google it. Um gives you some indication of the kind of blowback that he got. You know, we were talking about this with with Trump um, in, in yesterday's podcast with uh, with Carol Lennig and, and, and Phil Rucker that it's really important to understand that we talk about leadership a lot, but there's also this this problem of followership that people like Trump and Sean Hannity keep their finger on the pulse of the base and they don't want to get too far ahead. And so, you know, as, as, a, as a measure of what the mood out there in Red America is, Sean Hannity says, I want you to take this seriously. People are dying. Do the right thing. And feels the need to come back on the air on his radio show and television. So I didn't tell you to actually take it. I merely said you should do your research, whatever the hell that means. Yes. Go on Facebook. Talk to your aunt from southern Arkansas. Find out what's really going on. Because I, I definitely did not tell you that you should try to save your lives and do the responsible thing with vaccine. So I don't know. There, that's, there we are as we go into the weekend and we're at this pivot point uh, with, uh, with the vaccine. Uh, some of them. I, I know we've been lectured by National Review that we should take the uh, the vaccine resistors, uh, that we should take them seriously uh, and that we should show them respect. But some of these videos that you're now seeing online, including one guy who's got, he got a, he's on a ventilator, but he's insisting that he's not going to let them put that vaccine down his throat. It's like, OK, what do you what do you what do you say about all of that? Uh, although I think perhaps we ought to have a conversation, um, more, a more robust conversation about uh, uh, vaccine passports, proof of vaccination, and, and, and perhaps whether or not 
the marketplace should begin to price in the cost of healthcare for people who refuse to do the responsible thing. Okay, so on today's podcast, I want to talk about uh, one of the stories that we published in The Bulwark that has generated a huge amount of interest in which I must admit that I have a morbid fascination about. It is the most read piece on our site 10 days ago. It's probably also the longest piece that we've ever run in The Bulwark uh, with the the headline, um, What the Hell Happened to the Claremont Institute by Laura Field. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you for having me and for publishing it. Well, no, I mean, thank you. Thank you for, for writing it. And and I, I'm going to admit that this may seem like a lot of inside baseball for many of our listeners. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of in, in terms of the question of you know how the right lost its mind, it's easy to talk about the low hanging fruit, the Sean Hannity's, the Charlie Kirk's, the, the Tommy Laren's and you know, the, the, the other, you know, people in the, in the clown car. But the other thing that's happened has been the this this attempt to put an intellectual gloss on this. And it, 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 for people who are not familiar with this, it's kind of hard to overstate how respected the Claremont Institute used to be. And I want to read one paragraph that sort of sets this up, uh, Laura. Okay. Uh, the Claremont Institute used to be one of the principal places for conservative intellectuals to come together. It was founded by scholars who were taken seriously, even by people who disagreed with them. And some such scholars still publish in the pages of the Claremont uh, Review of Books. The Claremont has been unparalleled in its intellectual submission to Trumpism should give us pause. After all, in some respects, the Claremont crowd is precisely the sort who would have known better, deeply read in political philosophy and history and familiar with the many warning signs that Trump would be a damaging and divisive president. There's also a sense, however in which the Claremont crowd's submission to Trump was the most predictable thing in the world, the simple culmination of a political theory rooted in jingoism and denial. And then you go on to, to document what has happened to Claremont and the way they've given the sort of quasi-respectability to some of the, the rawest racism, conspiracy theories, uh, hysterical uh, hysterical rhetoric that you sometimes see on, on the right. So, I, I, again... Let's just talk about why Claremont matters, because, again, some of our listeners are going, I never even heard of all of that. But, I mean, in, in terms of the rights intellectual infrastructure, they yeah. have a lot of influence. These think tanks, these pieces, because the and the influences that the people who write op ed pieces will sometimes read them. People will look and say, well, what am I you know, what is a respectable conservative opinion? And for years, they've looked to people like Claremont, haven't they? Yes, I think, um, I mean, I think today we have to be a little bit careful in asserting, in calling them still, you know, they're, I don't think they are respected so much anymore. Not anymore. Um, no. And they've sort of been isolated for a while. Uh, and that's partly because of Anton, but it's partly, I think, has to do with sort of fragmentation in, in the academy and polarization, um, you know, because of politics sort of in the academy at large and, and sort of these these cultural clashes between conservatives and um, and the culture wars and all that. So I think that the Claremont Institute folks have been sidelined for quite a while. Um, and but yes, the Institute, what I mean, I think what I wrote there is true. There was a lot of respect. They were respectable um, for, for a good long while. 
not I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say that they were respected by sort of left wing intellectuals or anything like no. there's still major divisions there. Right. Right. But um, but I think there were serious intellectuals writing for the Claremont Review of Books and a lot of centrists and liberals would still read, I think, who were interested in seeing what was going on among conservatives would would read that publication with interest. Well, let's talk about you. You you, you mentioned uh, Michael Anton, uh, and, and this is a measure of the of the influence of of, of Claremont. Michael Anton uh, wrote this um, this quite influential piece back in uh, 2016, uh, the night flight 93 election, where basically he was saying, okay, so um, if if we, we should we should vote for Trump, um, e- even though we know that you know, it, it might kill us all, but uh, the the prospect of the of the Democrats winning is so terrible that we need to we need to treat this as if it is sort of the end of the world and 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 that got a tremendous amount of attention and i think at the time there were some people who might have thought well that's kind of an outlier you know michael anton you know, writing this hysterical piece about how we should charge the cockpit and we may all die but but uh, you know everything is incredibly apocalyptic but that's kind of the mood now at Claremont, isn't it? And 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 that's the kind. And you wonder where ideas sort of seep out of. And, and Anton is really probably one of the highest profile folks at Claremont now, isn't he? Yeah, I think that's sort of. Um, I mean, going to your, going back to your question about why we should care about this group and um, and just sort of what what it all what it means that they have be- fallen sort of in line behind behind someone like Anton and the whole Trump movement. Um, I think that Michael Anton, when he wrote that, it was it was an outlier piece. I think that probably most of the folks at Claremont looked at it with some real trepidation and thought, "What what is this guy doing?" And then you know, and it was, and and he was certainly not an intellect, you know, somebody who who was taken very seriously. But he he obviously hit some sort of nerve with that piece. And he, I mean, he published it pseudonymously. It wasn't like, so he was even a bit hiding behind it, right? It was a cowardly sort of public move on his part, but he, but he did it. And, and then Trump won. And I think one of the reasons I wrote the piece because is because I'm sort of fascinated with the relationship between sort of knowledge, right? And ideas and reasons and, and sort of rationalizations and power, and so you sort of see Anton give this very powerful rhetorical defense of Trump. Um, I mean, rhetorically powerful, not necessarily intellectually powerful, because it was just, I mean, I think it's easy to lose sight of just how um, um, d- repulsive the premise of the art, the, the piece was. I mean, basically positing that sure. Democrats are like the terrorists. Um, of 9-11. So just a really, really ugly premise there. But it took off partly because of that, the power of that kind of argument. And then, and I think it was, you know, very much held, you know, people held their nose up to it on the, among conservative intellectuals, but they saw um, how, how the effect that that had. And you can overstate, I'm not saying that Anton won Trump the election, but Rush Limbaugh read that essay, right, on the air. And, and I think that that kind of, that kind of argument, um, a group like Claremont has all kinds of just like a very powerful arsenal of, um, of arguments at the ready, right. For, for whatever kind of political position they want to take. So they started doing that with Anton. And then I think we saw a possibility there to keep doing it. And they fell, they fell 
for the power of Trump, right, and, and the kind of attractiveness of that. And I think they believed them, they came to believe their own message about about Democrats and about woke politics. Anyhow, so that's sort of how I see it. And, and I think it, it does matter a lot because those kinds of arguments are really powerful in the public sphere. Well, that's right. And that's a perfect illustration of the way these arguments sort of start in in a think tank you know, or, or an obscure publication and and then become very much part of the mainstream. And, you know, Rush Limbaugh reading that Flight 93 election uh, piece, which which then became part of the rationalization. This was part of the 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 intellectual pretzeling of some folks who tried to figure out why they were doing it. Now, by the way, uh, let's fast forward. Um, I'm sure you've seen this, the the most recent edition of the Claremont Review of Books. Uh, Michael Anton is back there. Yeah. And, it, you know, now that we know that, that sometimes these ideas can be leading indicators, he's now playing around with the idea of a bloody civil war uh, between Texas and California. And, and he compares our divisions now to the divisions in the Civil War, that back in the Civil War there was, and he quotes Lincoln saying there was there was only one substantial difference between us. And then he yeah. writes this. I mean, I, again, saying how much how much worse things are today. He says it's hard to think of one of one substantial commonality. In 1861, the South feared the North, despite protestations to the contrary, would impose its will come hell or high water. Today's California makes no such protestations. It insists on its way or the highway. The bad news for Texas would seem to be that in any such contest, the side that wants it more tends to win. And then he talks about well, what happens if there's a civil war? You know, if the the Lone Star, uh, you know, way of life is to survive. Texans must fight for it. And here's the key sentence. Then we shall see whether California's long experiment with postmodern deracinate, how do you pronounce that? Deracination um, mm-hmm. and as an anti-masculinity can stand up to Texas's more robust embrace of the old virtues. I'm not a betting man, but with that conflict to erupt, my money would be on Texas. So, here we have the guy who gave us the Flight 93 election from Claremont now writing in their premier publication, speculating of the possibility of a war, a civil war between Texas and California. And this, again, yeah. is kind of a measure of what you're talking about of what's happened at Claremont. Yeah. And I mean, I think that one thing... One thing to, to just take notice of here is that, and these on the Claremont website, and especially like in the piece, I talk about how the Claremont Review of Books, which is sort of this staid publication, has a nice font, it looks very serious, um, is sort of the, the flagship publication that people, you know, in intellectual circles probably would have heard of. But then there's also all of these other publications that are run there. Well, there's especially the American Mind, which is a basically uh, an online publication blog that gets all kinds of writers and um, and is is far sort of less serious on the face of it um, and just more rhetorically um, charged than the Claremont Review. But they've been flirting with this stuff with successionism in all kinds of different directions. For a long, for a few years now, talking about sort of the division between rural and urban America, um, and and just the, these sort of deep rifts that they see um, in the American culture, and and I think one of the things worth noting is that I think I mean from my view, obviously these things are very difficult to sort of 
decipher the truth of what's going on in America, right? You you can't live everywhere. It's difficult to really mm-hmm. get a get a grip on sort of American culture, which is I think extremely variable and and regional and and complicated and and obviously quite fraught right now in some respects. But I think they they project or I I they they see huge division and 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 terrible these you know they there's this alarmism and this sort of apocalyptic way of speaking that they engage in as if everything is just fraying and disintegrating right in front of us. It's very dystopian. And, um, and I think that, and this is very common, right. Um, on the right, especially as I've been paying quite a bit of attention right. to the intellectuals who, who sort of support or at least are silent on Trump. Um, and, and so it's a very common dystopian attitude, but, but, uh, my view is that they're project not only projecting this onto American society, but they're also, fl- you know, fueling those flames relentlessly. And so, you know, these groups, especially in some of their online publications, they say that there's all this terrible, you know, um, hatred and and there's all these awful divisions, right? And someone like, I mean, obviously Trump sort of plays on that too, but they're fomenting it, right? There's, there's two things going on. Yeah. And so that's that's just that's what's so aggravating about so much of this. Well, it, it is it is. I mean, and this is what's important here is that you see these themes that 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 the left wants to destroy America. They they hate America. They hate God. They are doing all of this stuff, and there is in the background, and it is in the background. This sort of this intellectual, uh, the, the, these these intellectuals who are really pushing all of this. Now, some people I know, I've I've said, hey, you know, keep your eye on the push for secession. I know it seems bizarre, but that's yeah. out there. It percolates in publications like this. Okay, so you devote a lot of time in, and, and I think it's fascinating in, in 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 the piece talking about the way Claremont has gone all in on the big the big election lie. Uh, the story of John Eastman, uh, who's a was a law professor who actually spoke at the January sixth rally, uh, who has you know spun one falsehood after another. Charles Kessler who uh, has been a longtime fixture uh, in, in conservative intellectual circles, you know, the editor of the book review, how he has, you know, aligned himself very specifically with Trump and with the the election line. But what I find, and this is what I wanted, wanted to, you know, dig down with you, is there's also this element that is, is I think, going to survive Trump and Trump, at least Trump himself. It, it's almost separate from Trump's own personal agenda, which is the the really raw nativism, uh, the flirtation with with racism, the the real fanatical sort of new post-liberal um, right-wing ideology. So let's talk about a guy that, that nobody's ever heard of before. Um, named Glenn Elmers, who you describe as a full-on fanatic. Now, we may think of him as a full-on fanatic, but Claremont thinks of him as an important voice. And in many ways, as I read your piece, I'm thinking, this guy right now is, you know, he's the kind of person that's been around on the right wing for years and years and years, generally um, isolated in, you know, in in the crazy, in the crazy uncle corner. But now he's a voice, given a voice and a platform by Claremont. So tell us who Glenn Elmers is and what 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 his what his message is and what what he's putting out there into the into the right wing ecosystem. Sure. 
I think what your description of who he is was probably best in that he wasn't he isn't someone who's well known at all. Um, and he but he but the Claremont Review is he he's just I think he's got an MA from the Claremont School. So he's sort of of this school, maybe studied with Charles Kessler. And it I mean, he's got a book coming out on Harry Jaffa, um, who is the sort of intellectual grandfather of the Claremont Institute. Um, but he is not somebody. Well, and he's a senior fellow and he's a, vi- yeah. he's influent. I mean, he's a senior fellow there. He's a visiting research scholar at Hillsdale college. Speaking of formerly respectable institutions. I mean, yes, yes, he is. But I guess I don't want to, I don't want to overstate his intellectual uh, merits here. And I don't mean to be a snob, but I, I just, I don't think he's somebody who no, many no. people would have heard of, like you said. Right. And right. so, um, but he, um, and and I, I think I did a quick Google search on him, right? And I don't think he's got and I sort of serious intellectual publications, but the Claremont Institute is publishing his stuff. And I think in the piece I described this really shocking thing they published um, of his about basically the that that conservatism is no longer enough. And so he it was sort of a rallying cry um, manifesto for a new cons- new sort of post conservative or a new kind of reactionary conservatism that or a revolutionary conservatism right and he 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 is trying to describe the one authentic america yes the one authentic sort of understanding of america that claremont understands and so he sort of put himself out as basically the he's going to be the poster guy for the kind of rhetorical um face of, of, I mean, something really ugly. I mean, it's hard to, I think without reading Glenn Elmer's piece, it's hard to describe just how um, sort of fanatical this piece was, but it was basically describing most. Oh, I think, I, th- I think we can explain it. I mean, he, he basically says, you know, there's the, the one, the one authentic America and the rest of the people in this country, people who didn't vote for Donald Trump do not believe in live by, or even like the principles, traditions, and ideals that until recently defined America as a nation, as a people, it is not obvious. We should call these citizen aliens, these non-American American, Americans, but they are something else. So, I mean, he basically yeah. says, if you voted for Joe Biden, you're not really an American. And by the way, you do see that occasionally, this kind of feel, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley tweet. So that's why, yeah. you know, he may not be intellectually substantive, but he is pushing these, these ideas out there, the, this identity yeah. politics, the progressives, you know, are not just wrong on taxes, but they want to turn us into a nation of, of slays they want to throw us into the gulag and um and i i I thought this was interesting he says america as an identity or political movement might need to carry on without the united states so i mean this is really extreme rhetoric but claremont is publishing it yeah i think that's right i mean he's sort of the the kind of grossest um um least subtle version of this but i think the interesting thing is that substantively even though the rhetoric is very highly charged i mean it's militaristic there's just all kinds of and there's racist lines i mean it's really gross if you read the whole thing um but but it but substantively and in terms of sort of the divisiveness and the, the kind of arguments that he's leaning on 
it's not that different from what you get. I mean, it's quite, it's sort of par for the course for Claremont now, but it's not that different from what you see in Charles Kessler. It's, it's much more sort of carefully delineated, right? And he's much more hedging in his support for Trump. Um, and in, in the kinds of arguments he, he, he deploys in the rhetoric, but his arguments substantively are not that far afield from this because he's, he basically thinks that there's, in his new book, he describes these two constitutions from, for America, right? There's sort of the good old constitution and then there's a progressive constitution. And he taps into rhetoric of basically the house, you know, Lincoln and the house divided, um, to suggest that that, you know, America's broken and there's only one way that can, we can come through this. So it's very similar to what we see in Anton today, right? This idea about the, that we're so divided now. Um, it's all kind of of a, of a piece in terms of the sort of the arguments that yeah, underlie a lot of this. And I think the, it's that, the loathing. Yeah. And, and the, and the sort of the, the, the mongering of, of divisiveness and a, and a misreading too of, of sort of Democrats and 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 liberals i mean i think it's just kind of perverse this perverse misreading of what democrats stand for and 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 leftists and of just their basic patriotism i think that it's a severe sort of well it's also just the loathing i mean this again this is this is part of the the weird thing is they claim they they claim to be patriotic in america first but mm-hmm. you know what really runs through this is the loathing for fellow americans the loathing for the america that doesn't exist yeah and and, and you describe also you have actually a section in your article called the lower circles and, you know, the just the raw racism of it. I, I just want to read you yeah. something from, and I remember reading this at the time. Um, this was interesting. You know, that Elmer's um, writes in, in his essay, if you are a zombie or a human rodent who wants a shadow life of timid conformity, then put away this essay and go memorize the poetry of Amanda Gorman. Amanda Gorman being the young African-American woman who read the poem at the, at the inauguration. But the language, zombie, human, rodent, you know, shadow life mm-hmm. of timid conformity. This, I, I, I have to say this, there's, there's a certain alien quality to the, this rhetoric that we, yeah. we, we generally, I mean, there's, there's history to describing um, your, you know, basically describing people who you politically disagree with as not real, you know, members of, of the nationality um, as zombies or human rodents. And he doesn't pull back from that at all. No, no, I, I, I know it's, um, I, I, it's hard to gauge how seriously to take them because it's so grotesque and it's sort of, they, they seem so divorced from reality, but I think that that would be a severe misunderstanding of what's going on here because we do know from history that this kind of dehumanizing right work, right, this uh, and rhetoric is, I mean, the, the, the possible outcomes of that are, are sort of, you know. Horrific. Yeah, they're horrific, and I think it's very easy in American context to not take it seriously. And, you know, I was talking with David Frum the other day on the podcast about whether or not, you know, to use the F word fascist to describe this. And I don't know how you describe this this sort of language without seeing it in the historical context of this kind of hyper nationalist 
it, 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 and it has that that sort of fascist uh, attitude. Now, you also talk about, I mean, in getting it, you know, f- for people who think that we might be exaggerating this, mm-hmm. you write, the Claremont Institute has knowingly provided cover to and made common cause with an alleged white supremacist named Darren Beatty. Beatty has a PhD in political philosophy from Duke. He was a speechwriter in the Trump White House, but was fired in August 2018 for having spoken at a conference in 2016 alongside white supremacists. This caused a stir at the Claremont Institute, since according to reporting at the time, Beatty appealed to the organization's listserv for help. And blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 yet they continue to embrace him and support him. And I, I found the most breathtaking part of your entire article. <laughs> was uh, you, 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 you found a series of tweets where Darren Beatty is tweeting out on January 6th, just this raw stuff aimed at African-Americans. Tim Scott needs to learn to learn. Tim Scott, black U.S. Senator, Republican, needs to learn his place and take a knee to MAGA. BLM must take a knee to MAGA. They must learn their place. Kay Cole James, who's the African-American president of the conservative Heritage Foundation, needs to learn her natural place and take a knee to MAGA. And this just goes on and on and on. And the president of the Claremont Institute actually seemed to be promoting Beatty's racist rants. I mean, that. Well, I mean, we have to be just very careful with this, right? But because the president was not promoting those racist tweets, he was promoting Darren mm-hmm. Beatty, the person. But he right. was doing it the day after those ra- racist tweets came out. Yeah. And so that, I mean, and, and so, yeah, just to be clear. Right. I mean, the fact that they're willing to even associate themselves with, um, with, with, with him is, is, re- is really remarkable. I mean, it, re- it really is. Hey, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more with uh, Laura Field about what did happen to the Claremont Institute and how this organization transformed itself. We'll be right back. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, Just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams uh, or others like The Next Level Podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Okay, we're back with with Laura Field, who wrote this amazing story about what the hell happened to the Claremont Institute. And I guess the big question I I have uh, to to ask you is is whether you think, Laura, Trump and the rise of of Trump distorted, changed the Claremont Institute, or whether the seeds of this were planted a long time ago. And I guess that's that's kind of the the fundamental question that a lot of us are wrestling with on the right. You know, how much of this was a black swan event, a, a, a deviation from an otherwise healthy conservative movement? And how much of it was sort of there and latent for a very, very long time, kind of the recessive gene? You seem to argue that that there was something that was there all along in the Claremont Institute that made it especially susceptible to this kind of a, of a turn. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I definitely think there's something in sort of the philosophy undergirding the Claremont Institute that made this, um, that, that sort of prefigured 
Trump or was sort of sitting there in in waiting for Trump. And I can and say I'll say something about that. But I also think that there's something kind of um, just in sort of the broad scheme of, of politics. There's something predictable about it about this happening and it's not just because of the sort of latent sort of latent beliefs of, of American conservatism or the Claremont Institute but I think that it's a universal phenomenon in terms of if you've got somebody who's become the president of the United States no matter who that is there are going to be people who line up behind him who are very smart right and so it doesn't really um so I think there's there's something that's just part of politics, right? Where you're going to get intellectuals who line up from on the right or on the left who want to be close to that and support that. But, but let me say a little bit about, I think why this happened with Claremont and, and, um, and sort of maybe a little bit about the history of this institution that was peculiar, but also, um, and then maybe after we can talk a little bit about some of the, I don't know if you want to, but some of the other intellectuals who are, who are also sort of, Part of this, I guess, just to, just to say one sort of thing ahead of, of, of this is that the Claremont Institute is kind of the most extreme pro-Trump group of intellectuals, but they're not the only ones. And so I think there's a reason there are a lot of sort of quiet yeah. people on the sides who, who sort of are happy that Trump happened, but um, um, and sort of support the, the, the change and the anti-establishment and the sort of the new openings in politics that, that has happened, but aren't as pro Trump is Claremont. So, but why Claremont? I mean, I think um, they were founded in 1979, the Institute, um, by former students of Harry Jaffa, who was a very serious Lincoln scholar. Uh, and, um, and sort of, I mean, you can see in the article, I talk a little bit about Straussians, and Jaffa was a student of Leo Strauss. Uh, and I won't go into all of that background now, but but basically Jaffa was a someone who read the Lincoln-Douglas debates very seriously and sort of revived this um, serious encounter with some of the founders and with Lincoln and when the sort of the political philosophy that that Lincoln um, brought to the country and sort of the the political talents of of Lincoln and the sort of the seriousness of him as a statesman, and so he sort of. There was he sort of birthed this school of thought that revered the founders and, and that um, revered the founding as something sort of this magical almost moment in in the history of the world, right? Where you get this this amazing um, bringing together of different sort of lessons from history of constitutional design in this moment um, and 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 it of the American founding through sort of enlightenment rationalism plus some some lessons from Christianity and ancient republicanism, and it sort of all came together for them uh, as, as this sort of really important moment in history. And they they became sort of myth makers around the founding. And, and even today, the Institute is devoted to sort of um, recognizing and studying the principles of the American founding. And, and so from a certain perspective, that's all, you can see how that's all very good and um, laudable. And, and yeah. serious. And so the that but that was, you know, 40 years ago or so. And I think in the course of time, you, you get some it's become a little bit of a of a stagnant theory and they've become quite jingoistic and a little it's become, I guess, maybe the word sort of idolatry fits where it's become a very brittle myth myth making. Um, and so they 
there's there's there are ways in which this way of thinking are just very close to alternative ways of understanding history and the founding. And so you can just see how they'd be completely opposed to something like the 1619 project. Um, and just sort of they've got their ears shut with respect to any critique of the founding and, and their own understanding of the founding is very idiosyncratic and kind of um, narrow minded. And um, it sort of erases all the all the serious contention and disagreement that happened at the founding and not to mention the, the problem of slavery and all of the sort of hypocrisy of the founding. So there's a kind of problem with their way of understanding the founding and they're they're sort of trying to make something perfect out of, out of something that, that I think in truth is really messy and, and difficult. And so, um, well, and even the authors of the Federalist Papers made it very clear. I think they made it. I mean, if you read the, the Federalist Papers, mm -hmm. th they understood that it was messy, that there were problems. We obviously had to uh, had to had to you know pass the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments to uh, to to fix all of this. But yeah. even with that, even even with the sort of sclerotic nature of 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 their thinking, it does feel. It's it, it's it's hard for me to see a, a, a straight line between that, the way I remember them maybe 30 years ago, yeah. and what they've become now. Is yeah. Has it been, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm just speculating here, you know, in order to understand a lot of what's going on in some of these right-wing think tanks, one of the, you know, important questions is to ask, uh, who are the funders? What are the funders asking for? Um, is it a matter of personnel? How do you go from serious thinkers to naming people like, you know, Jack Posobiec, um, you know, as as a fellow? I mean, there, there's there's something about what's happening now where they're, they're not even trying to be intellectually respectable in a way that would have been just routine just a few decades ago. Do you know what I mean? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you get Charlie Kirk? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, I think there is something to do with the, I mean, obviously the money and the sort of wherever that's coming from or wherever they've found a big audience who's willing to, to pay them for that is a major, you know, a major important question. But I also think that, that through this history, I mean, I think that they, it, it, we don't want to underestimate the extent to which there's they are serious ideologues now who believe that they their their America is under is under you know existential threat because of woke liberals. They I think that that is something right. that they are convinced about, and so to the extent that Charlie Kirk or whatever you know Turning Point USA or Ben Shapiro, right, all these guys are willing to. And, and Donald Trump are willing to own the libs and, and, you know, and work their magic with their, you know, with the, the loathing and hatred. I think that that, that they think that it's worth it. And, and they really believe that because they think that they're the heroes who are saving real America. So I think, yeah. And it also makes, brings in a lot of money and there's a lot of people who, who agree with that. Right. Um, but I, and so me, I'm not. I'm not yeah, so, yeah. I mean, for, for, for just so people, I mean, I understand when I say Jack Posobiec, I mean, he, he's he's well known as the promoter of the Pizzagate hoax and the Seth mm -hmm. Rich conspiracy theory. I mean, he's yeah. the kind of guy that you might see on, you know, one American news network now. And then Claremont, though, is is proud to be affiliated with him. I mean, they, they call him one of the best public policy voices in America, which is like what, you know, as you point out, just days before it was revealed that a 
right-wing website that uh, Posobiec uh, promoted was a Russian disinformation project. And I guess the one that makes your head hurt is this, they have these Lincoln Fellows, which at one point was a very prestigious uh, position uh, for, conser- for conservatives and naming Charlie Kirk, the founder of Turning Point USA. I mean, this was a guy who's basically kicked out of Liberty University after his, you know, his association with Jerry Falwell Jr. imploded and the Claremont Institute welcomed him with open arms. I mean, Kirk is almost like this living cartoon figure. So I'm still trying to struggle with how does an organization that has such a tradition and still has intellectual pretensions figure, yes, let's go name Charlie Kirk and the Pizzagate guy. Um, unless somebody's just writing a big check and saying, these, these are our folks. Yeah, I, I don't have the answer for that. I mean, I but I, my guess is yeah. that there's just a, there's a, a sincere conviction with most of these guys. Um, that the threat is real, right? And so, um, you, you yeah. deploy whatever means necessary. And I think, I mean, the reason I think. Even if it's that, stupid and racist? Yeah. I mean, I think it's extremely cynical on the one hand. Um, but I, but I also, I mean, I think that if, um, I, I mean, I come from this sort of same Straussian background that some of these people did or Jaffa used to not not the same. I mean, it's all that's a pretty big world and, and has all kinds of, you know, conflict and, and disagreement within it. But I think one thing that um, some of these these sort of students of Strauss and, and of, of the, the ancients, really, they sort of they have a very different attitude towards sort of philosophy and knowledge that then. Um, then we might expect from like an ordinary think tank. And I think that one thing that these guys appreciate is the, the, or they, they think is they appreciate the extent to which sort of certain kinds of arguments can be deployed um, prescriptively to try to sort of take culture. Right. And so I think that they're doing this actively knowing that it can have a big effect and they, they're not, they're not sort of shy about the fact that they are, actively trying to shape politics um and and that they're sort of open to all no that's true i think they're quite open about how they're going to use sort of psychological tactics and rhetorical um you know dangerous rhetoric that's sort of part of their shtick and so they, they just kind of i don't know if they don't take the danger seriously i mean I, I think that's what's gone. Like, I think they don't quite know, I, but it's very hard to understand. I mean, I, I think my point is I'm quite perplexed by this too, right? And in terms of how... how okay, you, you ask a series of questions, though, that I found fascinating right near the end of your piece. You said you wondered, do the respected scholars and thinkers who continue to write for the Claremont Review of Books agree with the new direction of the Institute? Do they think that contributing only to the higher-end publication insulates them, um, insulates them from being associated with the grossest parts of the overall Claremont project. Similarly, do all of Claremont's scholars and fellows, there are hundreds of fellowship alumni, including former faculty fellows, feel comfortable having their names used in fundraising efforts on behalf of the Institute's latest undertakings, or will they voice an objection? And are the foundations whose grants fund Claremont, including a number of small family foundations, aware of what the Institute has become? Do you know the answer to those questions? Because I think those are fascinating, fascinating questions. 
I do not know the answers to those questions. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I wish I did. I am just kind of hang out there. They just hang out there. Yeah, they're genuine questions. I'm genuinely perplexed by the names that I see um, still publishing with the Claremont Review of Books. You know, Harvey Mansfield, Jim Caesar, um, Matt Crawford, Christopher Caldwell, uh, Diana Schaub. I mean, these are people who, I mean, I have major political differences with them and always, and I think I always have, right? Um, but you know, I, I still, I just don't understand it. I don't know. Maybe they have a different way of judging the dangers of the kind of the gross nonsense um, garbage that the the other publications of the Claremont are promoting. Maybe, but I don't know how they could be. I don't know how they could be blind to that at this point. I mean, so the the, the questions that you're asking though are, are really highlight the collapse of the guardrails. Um, of the conservative movement. I mean, these are the, the people that you're asking the questions of are the people who normally, you know, in the past you would have thought would say, okay, we're not going this far. Okay. This is, this is what we believe. We're outraged. We have sincere beliefs, but w- we are not going to associate with a Darren Beatty. We're not going to associate with a, a Glenn Elmers. Uh, we're not going to run crazy. You know, we're, we're not going to be associated with a, you know, crazy uh, conspiracy theories of, of a John Eastman, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and God knows we're, we're, we're not going to have, you know, Flight 93 forever, or even if they did say that, they would have some standards. And I think that the fact that you don't have that is, is, is what makes this story so clear that Claremont or the people that you're talking about, the scholars, the fellows, the alumni, the, you know, the, the, the funders, these could have been the people who would have said, hey, uh, are you kidding? Let's stop there. And, the, and they're not, which is what makes this story so fascinating. You can read this in the bulwark. It's, it is a long, deep dive. Uh, Laura Field has done just an absolutely magnificent job. What the hell happened to the Claremont Institute, which is really in many ways, what's happened to the conservative movement, what has happened to the conservative mind. Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening to this weekend's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday. We'll do this all over again. Mm